The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about the middle class and how it has really transformed America. And that really fits into what is it? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to have privacy? And, and what does it mean to have this information age? And how are we transforming? And I'm really excited because I've just been reading this book called Promised Land, How the Rise of the Middle Class Transformed America. And it's by David Stebbin. And he is a professor at Ohio State University. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a professor of history, which is This book is just really fascinating. And history and law at Ohio State University. And he's a specialist in modern American political and legal history. He's published periodical commentary in The Conversation, The Huffington Post, The Republic, The New Republic, The Observer, and Salon. And he's appeared on National Public Radio's All Things Considered to discuss politics, the economy, and labor issues. So this is really a fascinating. This is this new book just came out uh, just recently, and it is called Promised Land, the, How the Rise of the Middle Class Transformed America 1929 through 1968. So this was before I was born, but then right in the middle of when I was in college. So it's a, a fascinating time. So David, thank you so much for joining us from Ohio this morning. Well, thank you for having me on, Mari. I really appreciate it. Okay, so first of all, tell us why you're calling this promised land. I took that set of words from a speech that Martin Luther King, Reverend King, gave Uh, the night before he was murdered. And he was talking about the future for black people in this country. And he said that um, I have been to the mountaintop and I have seen the promised land. Mm. And and I'm confident that we as a people are going to get there. And his dates, he was born in 1929. He died in 1968. Mm. Uh, He was a middle-class person. In other words, his vision of what he was fighting for for black people was for full equal inclusion in the predominantly middle class country that uh, came into being as he was growing up. 
Uh, and one of the, the, I should say, in writing about this, this is partly a story of achievement. The middle class does grow. It becomes more prosperous, more secure, more contented in many ways. But not everyone gets to participate equally. Right. One of the big drawbacks of the era is that African Americans, there are some who are middle class. He's a good example. Uh, Reverend King, one of the most famous examples. But it, it tended to be a much uh, more common experience moving up into the middle class and staying there if you were white than if you weren't. Right. Uh, and, and, and for a lot of Americans, regardless of race, creed, color, orientation, whatever, um, being middle class is something they like or aspire to. Uh, in other words, the vision, it's a kind of populist country in many ways. Uh, and so there will always be affluent people, and there may always be poor people to some degree. But uh, many Americans, that, that to that, their vision, of, <clears throat> their vision of what the promised land means in America is essentially a middle class one. Right, right. So, so why did you choose to write this, and and why now? Well, one reason I chose to wrote it, write it, was because the middle class has been shrinking. And I think most people know that in their bones, one way or another. And there are different measures of that. One is income. Another is wealth. Another is fraction of the overall population. But no matter what marker you're using, the middle class in recent decades has been getting smaller and more troubled. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's, this, I'm in a story, and let's look at the last time the middle class got bigger, healthier, more prosperous, secure and see how was that accomplished and with what results. And so that was one main catalyst for writing the book. And then the second was the presidential election four years ago because uh, President Trump, when he was candidate Trump, his slogan, which was on the hats, it almost never left his head, make America great again. Whatever you think of Donald Trump and his campaign, the people in the heartland who came out uh, and were attracted by that message it was the backward-looking nature of it that appealed to many of them. In other words, mm -hmm. it's not make America great, it's make America great again. And what Trump seemed to mean by that was more like the predominantly middle-class country that he knew when he was growing up. And so I'm in Ohio here, and when he would come out here and draw crowds in Ohio, and he did, the typical member of the crowd would be sort of an older white person who, had, who was middle-class and had grown up in that era when middle-class people were dominant. And the problem I had with the sort of approach four years ago was that people, when they talk about that era, tend to be highly selective. They pull out the parts they like the most and they leave everything. In other words, we tend to have polarized views of the 1950s, for example. Right. So there's the greatest generation version, right? This very uncritically positive view. Uh, and President Trump seems to most of the time be in that camp. And then there's the uh, other point of view, which is very negative because it points out correctly all the drawbacks of that era. And so what I wanted to do was to write a book that was a more balanced, fair-minded assessment of the middle-class era uh, and in the hope that that would contribute to a more thoughtful public discussion of these issues in 2020. Uh, where we are now. Yeah, so how would you define the middle class? Right, and definitions are important uh, because a, a very high percentage of Americans tend to think of themselves as middle class whether or not they are. 
my book is guided by a sense that the, in the period I write about, especially in the 50s and 60s, the middle three-fifths, the middle 60% of the income distribution could fairly be described as middle class. And if you ask Americans what does middle class mean, to most ordinary Americans, middle class means, well, you, by no definition can you be considered rich. And by no definition can you be considered poor. You're in between. Right. And, in the, and in the period I work on, uh, that the middle three-fifths of the income distribution fit that description. They weren't poor, and they weren't rich. They were in between. Uh, they were comfortable, to use an old-fashioned 50s phrase, much more so than they had been during the Great Depression when my book begins. Uh, and, and part of one's sense of what comfortable is is relative. And what's so interesting to me about the period I write about is they had traumatic memories of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And so the, the modest affluence for middle-class people of the 50s and 60s felt like a lot, be, precisely because so many of them remembered the 30s. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, there's a relative quality to it as well as an absolute And, and you know, David, when you're talking about this, I remember, you know, my parents were both children of the Depression. So my mother would tell me, you know, she was one of seven, 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 excuse me, seven children. And she was the only one working. I mean, not her parents weren't working. It was a really tough time. And my father also was one of 15. And (laughs) then then seven of them, seven of the kids died from diphtheria during that time. So I don't, you know, that's how many were left. And he was the one who was working, you know, he was a craftsman, and he had been a furrier in Chicago, where it was, you know, 40 below zero. And um, so they raised my sister and I, and obviously we would hear these things about the depression. You, you know, the children in Europe are starving. You better eat everything on your plate, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. And um, But we had, you know, I would say when I look back, we were, you know, we were definitely middle class. We, we had the first TV, the first color TV. We, you know, we had two cars, we had a house, we had a nice neighborhood. And um, so we were, you know, we always considered ourselves middle class or kind of maybe even upper middle class. But so it's interesting, you know, to grow up in that era and then kind of see how, you know, we always said everybody's going to do better. Like we did better than our parents even. Do you know what I mean? I became a lawyer. My yep. ex was a doctor. You know what I mean? We we were, we were going to be better than that generation. And now, you know, the kids, our kids worry that they're not going to have what we had. So I can right. see what you're talking about. Right. And this, this sense on the part of people who grew up in the Depression in the 50s and 60s was, well, we have progressed from there, and our children will do even better. And that will be the normal experience for our children. There might be exceptions. And, the, and so part of the definition of middle class is this sense of forward progress. Right. Uh, the escalator that gradually carries most folks upward. Uh, and even if you don't get to the very top, so to speak, uh, there is a sense that, that, that you do better than the generation before you. And, and again, that's another measure of how the middle class is in trouble now because that sense for people in the middle of the income distribution has faded. So 
Uh, and so it's, and to me it was a very interesting, you know, is there one mechanism, what explains this? And it was very interesting to me to discover that there were a lot of different factors at work uh, that contributed to the rise of the middle class. Uh, one is the sort of the collapse of the economic system beginning in 1929. In other words, uh, the middle class in the 20s was not large. Income and wealth distribution were very unequal, even the most during the most prosperous years of the mid to late 20s. Statistically, income and wealth were as unevenly distributed in the late 20s as they are now. Uh, and then the depression came along, the shock to the system, right. set off in part by the stock market crash. And then you had uh, this very unfortunate situation that you had a, a novice politician as president, Herbert Hoover, who came from the business world. He had never run for public office before he ran for president in 1928. And he did not handle this crisis that he never expected uh, well. Uh, he didn't work with Congress well. He His, not history repeats itself, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, <laughs> I, and in some ways, President Hoover and President Trump are very different, but there are similarities as right, well. Right. And so, uh, for example, in the, as protests mounted against President Hoover's poor performance in handling the Great Depression, uh, among the most famous protests involved uh, veterans of World War I who came mm-hmm. to Washington, D.C. to request payment of a bonus that they had been promised for their military service and they wanted it early. And they had some very good arguments. They said, well, I know we're not supposed to get this. They would say, the leaders, we know we're not supposed to get this until later. But if we got it now, it would help us support our families. It would also help the merchants and small businesses on the main streets and the towns where we live because we could buy things. Right. Uh, and, but Congress refused to uh, appropriate the money. They were worried about a big deficit and so on. Uh, and... And the protesters refused to leave. In other words, they stayed in their camps in D.C. And so then President Hoover got frustrated and he sent in the army to get rid of them. <laughs> and this is in the summer of 1932. And his presidential prospects, his re-election prospects that year collapsed. In other words, that turned off much of the society. In other words, what they did not want was a president whose response to social protest resulting from widespread unemployment and poverty, to be military repression. And so he, he never really recovered uh, in terms of his campaign from that point forward. Mm-hmm. So what did voters do instead? They tossed him out, and they picked a career politician. In other words, Franklin Roosevelt, when he ran for president in 1932, had been around seemingly forever. Uh, and everyone sort of knew him in the Democratic Party. And because his last name was Roosevelt, he was it's a name that people knew because of his famous cousin, Theodore. Right, right. And the, say what you want about career politicians. There are pluses and minuses when talking about people who spent their entire adult lives in the public sector. But one of the good things about politicians, one of their skills, is they tend to be very good, if they're successful, <laughs> politicians, in figuring out what voters want and trying to give it to them. Right. So the idea of Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 was not that he knew exactly what to do. The idea was, I will be more responsive to you and your concerns than President Hoover has been. Uh, and so he came in and he changed things and did a whole bunch of different things. And one thing I want to talk about a little bit is Social Security 
because it it shows the trade-offs. It intersects with the privacy issue right, that right. is so central to your show. In other words, he wanted to figure out a mechanism for increasing middle-class wealth and savings, uh, especially for old age. Right. And Social Security emerges the most single most important domestic New Deal program of the 30s, and it mandates, it requires people to save money for old age. And it becomes, it takes a long time to fully mature. You have to make 30 years of contributions. So right. it starts in 1935, and you can add 30 years to that before Social Security becomes what it is now. But the point is, it was successful. On the other hand, it did some of the people who resisted it, libertarian types uh, and so on, resisted it because they feared that assigning all workers Social Security numbers would ultimately lead to an invasion of their privacy. <laughs> Which the is true. Could, yeah. Yeah, they could foresee that, right? Right. <laughs> and and as the, in other words, the, one of the most important ways the middle class expanded was because the government, especially the federal government, became bigger and more interventional. And mm-hmm. there were some very positive results of that. But then the question became, well, if the government is going to collect ever more information about people, will this create a new concern in terms of privacy? Mm. So uh, one of the things that the book talks about, for example, is as national security concerns grow in the late 1930s and early 40s, as the war in Europe draws nearer, uh, President Roosevelt decides, FDR decides to expand the size of the FBI which had already grown under his watch because there was so much crime as a result of the Depression, bank robberies and the like. Right. So one of his legacies... And the mafia uh, grew then too, didn't it? There wasn't that at the same time too? Well, the organized crime is transformed. Yeah. In one sense, it declines because when the New Dealers come in, they accommodate the majority and end prohibition, right? And that has right. been a big way that organized crime had grown in right. the 20s. But they move into other lines of illicit activity. And so the FBI gets bigger, and that does in some ways combat crime effectively. In other words, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI in the 1930s, is something of a hero to people because he's been effective in getting rid of these bank robbers and so on. On the other hand, as the FBI grows in the 30s and 40s, it creates another of privacy concern. Right. You know, a federal policing presence. Mm-hmm. Will that create problems? And in fact, Director Hoover keeps files on people. Right. Now, they are quaintly old-fashioned files. They're literally in manila file folders, which limits how many files he can have. He doesn't have a computer. But the point is, the birth of some of these privacy concerns that your show deals with yeah. come right out of the same... So, And that's... I mention this because... The book attempts to describe the positives and the not-so-positives about this. Right. right. Uh, and, and the hope is to encourage people, if you're concerned about the plight of the middle class today, and you want some perspective on how this was done before and what the results were, so you can have some sense of what a new and improved version of a more middle-class country would look like. That's really what the book is intended to do. So, in other words, there's no way to recreate it exactly as it was, that era, and we wouldn't want to for a variety of reasons. But the 
but you do want some insight. Well, what would a new and improved one look like? Uh, and there are definitely privacy issues there, right? Figuring out ways to prevent bigger, more supportive government not to become ever more intrusive government, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the the middle class, the rise of the middle class really brought on some things like the women's movement and race relations, right? I mean, talk a little bit about that. And that's kind of like rearing its head again, right? Right. Well, and to give you an example of how the rise of the middle class affected women, the New Dealers uh, in the 30s were preoccupied with increasing employment for male breadwinners, right? And so in this environment of mass unemployment, where there's kind of a job rationing mentality, no more than one good job per household, generally given to the head of the household, in quotes, that being typically a man in those days. Right. And so if you take that approach too far, you can see over time how that might create a, a backlash among women, mm-hmm. right? And so because the, that model works well for many families of modest income, especially when they have young children, right? right? right. But, but as lifespans improve, in other words, the middle class gets healthier, their lifespans grow, uh, and then even in those sort of traditional 50s families, uh, and they tend to get married young because they can afford to and they have kids when they're young, so by the 1960s, there are loads of women who are victims of their own success in the sense that they have raised children successfully uh, along with their husbands, but they've been the primary uh, child care providers, to use today's phrase, in the 50s and 60s. And then they're in their early 40s. They've done a good job. The conditions in those days are conducive to raising kids successfully. And then the kids don't need them very much. And, but they're now, their lifespan has grown to 70 plus years. And oh my goodness, what on earth are they going to do for the next 30 years? And the system did not really envision that, figure that out. And people ask me why, and I, I always emphasize how new this was. In other words, the, a predominantly middle-class country was a new idea in modern America. Mm. And so some of the things that were tried in the short run produced the results that were intended, but over the longer run, produced results that tended to destabilize the system. Mm. Uh, And then there are the daughters of these women, in other words, who grow up, who have sort of a front row seat, seeing what their moms go through in their 40s. Uh, And this is complicated also by the fact that so many uh, of these women live in suburbia, right, which is a much more isolating place once the kids are grown. Right. And so, and so suburbia is a very positive place for many families to raise children, but it's a much tougher place uh, once they're gone, especially for people who are at home all day long, because they're, they're just not like small towns or urban neighborhoods. There aren't a lot of other people around. So, and you mentioned the African-American or racial issue, and Mass suburbia is related to that. In other words, mass suburbia, mass middle-class suburbia emerges after World War II and the Levittowns and places like that, but they aren't open to black people. Uh, And so in some ways, residentially, America becomes more segregated because the amount of physical distance between white people and black people grows as more and more whites move to suburbia, which is 
1968, an almost entirely white place to live. Right. And so African Americans who would like to move to suburbia can't do so. And that has, it isn't just being around white folks. I don't know, some of them want to do that, but maybe not all. But the point is, those suburban houses are great investments for middle class people. Mm-hmm. But they can't participate in that. And so African American wealth is adversely affected with long-term consequences. So, and those are just a couple examples. There are many more. So, so the, one of the themes of the book is some of the things that were done to make the middle class grow uh, ultimately destabilized the predominantly middle class America that resulted. So it is both a success story and then not so successful. And also what it did to our eating habits, <laughs> you know, in our movies. I mean, it's just, it's, oh my gosh, you know, now we're, you know, out in California, we're trying to be healthier than the Midwest, right. you know. <laughs> so, you know, we we have our, uh, well, we meditate out here, my husband and I, and then we get up and we have our, our smoothie and we have our all of the things that we eat that are healthy, we don't eat gluten, you know, but all this stuff, the craziness of the, the, the choices that you have when you go to the grocery store, I mean, how does, how does the middle class, that must have been a big influence as well, right? Right, and it, it's, I'm pleased you asked the question because the, I don't want to give any listener the, the impression that, well, it's only about economics and politics. The book also deals with social and cultural trends. So how diet changes, right? How how eating changes, cuisine, whatever. How um, movies and radio and television change, and it is this rise of the middle class, uh, the Midwestern moment in modern American history. In other words, the Midwest tends to be the place in the country where the highest fraction of the population is middle class, and. So the influence of the middle class way of living expands. So California becomes a more middle western kind of place uh, in terms of not just economics and politics, but also uh, social cultural factors. And so, and there's good news and there's bad news. In other words, there is a kind of moderate eating ethic associated with middle class Midwesterners. And often the food is rather bland. But it is a conscious strategy. In other words, if the food is not full of salt, sugar, fat, temptation food, uh, then there's much less likelihood that the people eating it will overeat it. And not everyone wants that approach. In other words, uh, <laughs> but, but not everyone has the required self-control yeah. to eat much tastier food and then stop before they overeat, right? And so, so there is... My point is not to endorse the rather bland, wholesome diet of the middle-class era so much as to explain it. Yeah. Uh, in other words, it has its own internal logic. Yeah. So but, your book is so fascinating, and it's time to go. So the name of the book uh, by David Stebbin is Promised Land, How the Rise of the Middle Class Transformed America, 1929 to 1968. And of course, we're going to have to have you back after the election in November to see sure. what your thoughts are on that. But um, just tell people how they can find out more about you. Could you do that? And then it's time to go. Okay, lots of different ways. You can go to 
Scribner or Simon and & Schuster and type in Promised Land, and they have information about me there. You can go to my Ohio State University History Department faculty bio page. Uh, or I'm let, on me, let me just spell I'm, your name, okay? It's uh, sure. David. Everybody knows David, but it's S T. E-B-E-N-N-E, Stebbin. So it's time to go. Thank you so much, David. It's fascinating to talk to you. And we will talk again, okay? That would be great. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.